morning and welcome to the early morning ASI meeting. I don't know about you, but I always, uh, when I attended camp meeting as a uh, young boy, I liked to get up for the early morning uh, presentations. Uh, there was something special about uh, the focus on the Lord uh, first thing in the morning. And often I noticed uh, a lot of the uh, better presentations, maybe a little less fluff, a little, uh, um, you know, less bells and whistles, but uh, more meat sometimes uh, was available in the morning. And I certainly uh, uh, hope that it's a blessing for you um, this uh, ASI time to attend these meetings. Before we begin, let's bow our heads and ask the Lord to be with us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the interest that you have in our health of body, mind, and soul. And as we open your word and also discover the revelations from science, we pray your blessing upon us. We pray that each heart and mind would be open to receive your spirit of truth that brings comfort and love. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was told uh, uh, last night uh, that there was no way we could use any kind of graphics uh, here this morning. And uh, somehow uh, with a, uh, a non-3ABN person back there, we rigged something up for you on the screen. Uh, so we'll see if this uh, clicker actually works. But since uh, a lot of my uh, material, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words sometimes, I thought it would be better uh, to display this. The good news is this isn't being uh, recorded on, um, on uh, DVD or anything like that, so we don't have any cameras flashing here today. I do understand the audio will be there for those that want to be able to uh, get it that way. But today we're going to be talking about how to enhance your intelligence. And uh, yes, it does uh, show up here. Intelligence is your capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. Sounds pretty simple, uh, but that's a pretty involved statement there. It's actually looking at the capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge, not your actual knowledge base now. And this is one of the reasons why people sometimes at age 18 are disappointed at age 30 when they find out their IQ has not improved on an IQ test because they think, hey, I've gone through college, I've gone through all of this learning and my IQ hasn't improved. No, IQ is just measuring the capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. And it's often measured by an IQ test. Now we know IQ tests are not the best necessarily uh, for measurement of this, but it's the best that we have available at present and it's often a pretty good indication. It's related somewhat to academic performance. Uh, how many of you have known someone with a high IQ who has not done well in school? How many of you have known someone with just an average IQ who excelled in school? All right, many hands go up on both of those, and that's simply due to the fact that IQ is measuring your capacity, but it's not at all measuring the motivation. Motivation has to do with emotional intelligence. And there are individuals with average IQ, with high EQ, who excel in academics uh, simply because they have that motivational portion, they know how to study, etc. And then there are those with a high capacity who don't have the emotional intelligence and they can do pretty poor at school. But it is related somewhat to academic performance. 
And uh, studies show that college graduates' first job after graduation is found to be related to their IQ. So in other words, how good a job at least people in the world get uh, is often related to that capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. Now, there are other advantages of higher intelligence. Studies show that you're more efficient in studying. So in other words, you don't have to study as long to get as good a grade sometimes. And that's, of course, a significant advantage. You tend to be, not tend, you are more creative. In fact, creativity is one of those things we look at in regards to capacity. You're also more logical. And so you're able to advance uh, in regards to planes of learning just in regards to the logic part itself. And as a result of that, you're more persuasive. So people with high IQ tend to be in an environment in which they have an increased influence. And that also puts them into a capacity where they're more likely to become a leader. And so uh, whether that uh, leader is of a, of a church, whether the, uh, the leader is that of a country uh, or of a company, et cetera, uh, if they have a, a large following, chances are they have those things in regards to logic, persuasiveness, and uh, leadership. Uh, studies show that uh, you're also more likely to become wealthy. And uh, of course, that's not across the board. Uh, none of these are across the board necessarily in regards to IQ, but they, obviously there are significant advantages of intelligence. There's another advantage, and I like these long-term uh, studies. This was a study based on 862 men and women followed since childhood, starting in 1922 until 1986. The researchers found that up to the cutoff point of 163, now I should just back up a little bit. What is the average IQ? Does anyone know? Average IQ is 100. Every 10 points is a standard deviation. For those of you involved in statistics and math, uh, to go up 10 points is a significant amount. It's a whole standard deviation. So if you're up to 120, you're up to almost the top five percentile in the country. So if you're at 163, that's an extremely high IQ. And so the researchers found that was the cutoff point. They didn't find people with higher IQ than this. Participants' risk of dying during a given period decreased as their IQ increased. For example, those with a childhood IQ of 150 had a 44% lower risk of death than those with an IQ of 135. In fact, in longevity studies, this is something that has to be looked at. We didn't used to look at this aspect in regards to how long people live. But how long people live is often related to their intelligence. And if we want to know whether it's intelligence or other things, sometimes we have to break it out. Now, of course, the question is raised, why is IQ related to longevity? And we'll be able to answer that at least in part here today. Now, it's also important as we talk about capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge that we talk about myths about intelligence. One of the myths is genetics is all that matters. And one of the reasons why this myth is perpetuated in our country is because many individuals are raised in a uniform way. They eat the same types of foods, they go to the same types of schools, they watch the same types of movies and entertainment, they read the same books, and in general, many people in America are raised in a very uniform way. They might have different parents, and there might be slight differences, 
But in reality, when you see these big differences in IQ, and everyone is pretty much raised the same, what is different? The difference is the genetics. And so genetics seems to surface as something very powerful in regards to IQ. However, it is not even up there as far as more than 25% of your IQ. And so it's important to recognize genetics does have a role to play, but environmental influences actually have a much more powerful role to play in regards to intelligence. Another uh, myth that's out there is there's nothing you can do about it after age 18. <clears throat> and that simply is false. Many individuals, by applying the information that we're using today, have significantly increased their IQ. And uh, <clears throat> I can just give you an example of someone who went to an ASI institution. Actually, he was in our uh, uh, town of Ardmore, Oklahoma. Uh, he came to our vegetarian restaurant there, and uh, he became interested in diet, and then he became interested in biblical truth, and uh, he not only changed his diet, he became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian and was baptized. This young man was good-looking, tall, uh, and he did this against the, wife of his wish, uh, the, the, the uh, wishes of his wife. Uh, it ended up, not right away, but unfortunately, his wife ended up divorcing him over the fact that he became an Adventist Christian. And shortly after that, the, uh, the one who runs our, uh, our restaurant there, Mary Burnt, uh, made a recommendation that he go to a place to become a Bible worker. And so he went to a Bible worker training place. Now, this was a place that had an accredited curriculum. Uh, you know, it was accredited by Griggs, and it was pretty intense for someone who had barely made it through high school. And uh, I remember talking to um, uh, the one who ran the curriculum, and he told me halfway through the program, I don't think this gentleman's going to make it. Nice guy, just the nicest guy. He loves truth, but he's just, I don't think he's going to be able to pass. And near the end, I talked to him again, and I asked him about it, and he says, you know what? He's doing better. He's actually, he's going to barely pass, but I think he's going to pass. And he passed this six-month Bible worker training program with the uh, good enough grades to get the credits. Now, he comes back. Uh, he actually got a job in, uh, in Colorado after that in a, um, uh, in a local church was a successful Bible worker, young Bible worker, but he comes back to Ardmore, Oklahoma to visit his family on occasion, and he came back uh, one day, and I happened to be eating there in the restaurant, and he says, Dr. Nedley, he said, I would really like to expand my influence. I'm thinking about becoming a doctor. What do you think about that? Now, I must admit, my first reaction to that was, you know, this guy just barely made it through high school. Bible worker training, yeah, there's some intensity to that, but pre-med, medical school, nah, I mean, no. But then I thought, you know what, I shouldn't just assume this. I said, you know, and I talked to him about the challenges of it and whether he was up to it and all of that, and he says, you know, I'd like to do whatever I can to increase my capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. And so I went over with him this particular presentation. We spent some time together, and he spent his, his whole, he changed his whole lifestyle so that it would line up 
with the principles of the capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. And then after that, he went to pre-med school. And he was taking chemistry and biology, having a rough time at first. But then, as he continued, his grades improved. And just last year, his MCAT score was high enough to get into medical school. The capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge is powerful even after age 18. Another myth, people that are highly intelligent are generally irritating to be around. Now, uh, this turns out to be no more uh, likely than people that are of lower intelligence are more irritating to be around. It turns out their irritability is much more related to their EQ than their IQ. So there are some people with high IQs that are very irritable to be around because they have low EQ. Uh, but uh, it's uh, not actually the case that people with high IQ, just because of that, are more irritating to be around. Another uh, myth, people that are highly intelligent lack common sense. I think Einstein perpetuated this myth because he would frequently get lost on his way home from work. Uh, he was so focused on his job, and he didn't live that far away, but he'd end up a few blocks away, and he'd be having to ask directions on where he was at, and they'd think, you know, this is the guy that we're trusting to do all of this high academic stuff, and he can't even find his way home from work. Uh, but actually, studies have shown the opposite. The higher IQ, the more common sense. And then another myth, you can't improve it, so why try? We've already talked about that myth. Now, as we talk about intelligence, there are a number of things related to it. The temporal lobe is where our capacity is to retain the knowledge. And, you know, some people will say, hey, I just want to be thinking logically. I'm not really concerned about memory. I can tell you, you won't be able to think logically unless you do have a memory as well. It's not just your capacity to apply the knowledge. You have to be able to retain it as well. So memory is an important part of IQ. The occipital lobe has to do not only with our vision, but spatial orientation and uh, architectural type of ability, and that's about 20% of IQ. Parietal lobe has to do with mathematics, calculation, division, subtractions, verbal uh, aspects of IQ are also related to the parietal lobe. Of course, the emotions are very much related to that. Cerebellum is, of course, the coordination center. And when sports people come together, such as the Olympics that are going on now, actually what they're um, determining is which group has a more corporately developed cerebellum. They don't recognize that's what they're doing, but that's in, in reality what is happening at those events. And then the frontal lobe is the area of the brain that is very uh, intimately connected with IQ, as well as with EQ. This is the area of the brain that we really want to enhance to not only enhance our capacity, but also our emotional intelligence as well. Now, when I was in high school biology, uh, I had to dissect a cat, and I didn't realize until I got into the cat brain at how small a cat brain actually is. But what I didn't realize then was only 3.5% of a cat brain is in the frontal lobe. Not much morality in a cat if you've ever seen it torture its victims to death uh, and seemingly enjoy the process. Dogs have a little more frontal lobe, about 7% of the brain. They'll, they won't hesitate to murder if they have to, but they will do it much more mercifully. They have more empathy in regards to this. They don't like enjoy torturing individuals. Uh, chimpanzees have the most of any other animal species, 
But what sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom is our frontal lobe size. 33 up to 38% of the brain is in the frontal lobe. And scientific studies show that the frontal lobe is not only related to intelligence and EQ. This is a, a quote from uh, Guyton's textbook of physiology. The frontal lobe is the seat of what? Spirituality, morality, and also the will. And this is an area that should be of utmost concern to us as Christians. Now, there are effects of compromised frontal lobes. There's an impairment of moral principle that tends to occur across the board. This has been demonstrated in a whole host of studies. If we want to follow the decline of morality in our society, we have to look at the frontal lobe. And uh, in that frontal lobe in a corporate standpoint. And so uh, frontal lobe impairment is very much related to the uh, moral decline. There's a social impairment that also occurs. Uh, it's natural to love your family members, your children, your brothers and sisters, parents. But if there's a loss of love for family, normally it's due to a frontal lobe compromise. Lack of foresight. Our ability to reason from cause to effect and our ability to predict the future is very much related to the frontal lobe. We're going to talk about uh, that role particularly tomorrow when we talk about leadership. There's a characteristic of the frontal lobe that is very much related to uh, leadership, and we'll be looking at some of the new material related to that. Abstract reasoning is impaired. Your ability to interpret proverbs goes down, and even higher forms of math can go down. Uh, and there's a loss of empathy that also occurs. Uh, there are some individuals that mistakenly think that it's impossible for one individual to understand the feelings of another when they haven't been through that similar situation. Actually, it is very possible, but only in human beings and only in those with intact frontal lobes that are well circulating. You may not have gone through that circumstance at all, but just knowing the circumstances of what the individual has gone through, you can feel those precise feelings yourself. It's called empathy, and it's a very important part of emotional intelligence uh, in the frontal lobe. Lack of restraint also occurs when the frontal lobe is compromised. Uh, boasting, hostility, these type of things. Uh, anger uh, issues also surface. There are character strengths that, are, that result from enhanced frontal lobe function. And those uh, character strengths, uh, I, there are several of them that we're not going to talk about today. We're just going to talk about the ones related to the capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. But one of them is called creativity or ingenuity. This is something that is clearly demonstrated. If you are below average in IQ, your creativity is about zero. You'll be able to copy someone else, but you're not going to be able to actually come up with something that is creative. There are two essential components, originality and adaptive, making a positive contribution to the life of others. So being original and also adaptive so that it can influence others in a positive way is part of that enhanced frontal lobe function. Also, one of those things that's very much related to the capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge is interest. Interest is also a frontal lobe phenomenon. And it's fun to interact with someone who is intrigued by everything. This is why some people, particularly those that have higher emotional intelligence and higher IQ, they're very interesting to be around. Uh, and they're interesting to be around because they're interested 
uh, in so much. And uh, in fact, uh, there's a, uh, a book, you can uh, find it at our booth, it's called Character, Strengths, and Virtues. It's actually a scientific book. If you're, if you're not interested in scientific psychology, don't get this book. But it goes into the scientific studies of 32 different character strengths and virtues. And in speaking of this one in particular called interest, on page 100 it says, if curiosity can be cultivated, no one need ever search for interesting experiences. One will simply what? They'll simply have them because of that interest that's there. And so if we're having problems with boredom among our youth, etc., there's a problem with the frontal lobe. There's a problem with that interest because there's so much, even in this room, if you have someone who's very interested, they'll be able to find a number of things that will intrigue them and they'll sit there and focus in on them and talk about them, etc. And uh, that's one of the enjoyable aspects of this. In fact, one of the, uh, the Character, Strengths, and Virtues book talks about when the frontal lobe is enhanced significantly, individuals tend to be far more enjoyable to be around when their frontal lobes are enhanced. A lot of times we as Christians get this feeling that if the frontal lobe is enhanced through spirituality or other means, we're going to become less interesting individuals. Not true. Or less enjoyable to be around. Christ was a very enjoyable individual to be around. And he was very enjoyable, uh, not, uh, not at all unrelated to the fact that his frontal lobe was fully functioning. There are also other character strengths. Your critical thinking, your rationality, judgment that are related to IQ is a frontal lobe phenomenon. And it feels good. It leads to good decisions and also leads to coherent view of the world. And so frontal lobe enhancement is very much related to happiness as well. Love of learning. We've talked about interest as well. It's related to that, but they break out that character strength in this, uh, in this uh, classic book. Wisdom is also an important part of intelligence and frontal lobe. It's the product of knowledge and experience. And so if you have that good frontal lobe function, then you add knowledge and experience to it. Uh, it's tremendous. The coordination of accumulated information is deliberate use to improve well-being, not only of yourself, but particularly others. And then empathy or kindness is very much uh, related to this as well as social intelligence. Now, social intelligence is a little different than emotional intelligence. Social intelligence, an example of this is when you're checking into the hotel here and you ask the person that's checking you in, how are you doing today? And that person says, you know what, I've got a bad stomach ache. I was nauseated today. I'm having pain right here. Actually, I'm having a bad day. Now, that individual is lacking in social intelligence. If that individual is that sick and having a bad day, maybe they shouldn't have come to work and seen the doctor that day or gone somewhere else. And that person is saying, well, you know, he asked me how I was doing. I'm just being honest, etc." But yet now all of a sudden that problem becomes the problem of the guest that's checking in and they're wondering, boy, you know, what kind of staff is this, etc." And lack of social intelligence can produce a lot of problems even in those individuals who think they're being transparent. It's okay to just say, I'm fine, because they were fine enough to come to work, obviously, and go on and trying to help the customer uh, that's there. Now, research in the last decade well establishes that when emotional problems surface, whether it's depression, uh, whether it's anxiety, 
or many other emotional problems, it's due to a lack of activity and circulation of the frontal lobe of the brain. This is a, uh, it says PET scan, actually it'd be more uh, accurately interpreted as SPECT scan that looks at circulation. Those are the same two brains, one of the individual with depression and one of the individual after the depression has been recovered from. And if we're going to help emotional problems, we cannot ignore the frontal lobe. This is the area of the brain that it needs to increase in circulation the most. And, uh, and so a comprehensive program that in includes spiritual things is paramount for improved frontal lobe uh, function. Drevitz presents compelling evidence that frontal lobe problems are the cause and the effects are the depressive symptoms. Uh, and uh, years ago, my, uh, one of my sons pointed out this picture and said, look, Dad, even when the frontal lobe is compressed on the dog, they get depressed. And uh, uh, that's, uh, of course, true in human beings. There are legal drugs that damage the, uh, actually impair the frontal lobe and can damage it. Alcohol, of course, affects the frontal lobe first before it affects any other portion of the brain. Did you know they've done studies on baseball players under the influence of alcohol? When they're at the legal limit of alcohol intoxication, they can hit a curveball out of a baseball park if they're skilled in doing so, just as well as if they're not impaired. That means their cerebellum is working, their coordination is working, etc. But why are they 10 times as likely to get into an automobile accident? It has to do with their judgment. And this is what happened to Prince's Dye's driver. He was conversing normally, talking normally, but he attempted to negotiate a turn at a tunnel, a speed that was impossible to negotiate, even under the best of coordinated circumstances. He lost his life, others lost their life as well. Now what the studies are showing is, the next day, is that individual able to drive an automobile safely? They actually are. Does it require critical abstract thinking to drive an automobile? It does not. Otherwise, we wouldn't allow 16-year-olds to do it. Uh, we just wouldn't. You know, it takes 30 years for the frontal lobe to be fully developed in human beings, and we would say you have to be 30 in order to drive if it was critical abstract thinking. But the next day they're able to drive, but as far as critical abstract thinking, it takes two weeks for the frontal lobe to fully recover from alcohol. And so that's one of the reasons why alcohol needs to be abstained from as far as frontal lobe function. Nicotine has a more subtle effect. And then the most commonly consumed drug in America, caffeine, also has an effect. Caffeine actually blocks the adenosine receptors in the frontal lobe of the brain. Pavlov studied this out. Typists can type a little bit faster under the influence of caffeine, but they make 10 times as many errors. And interestingly, in the National Football League, some of the progressive quarterback coaches are telling their NFL quarterback to consume zero caffeine. Why is that the case? It seems unfair because the linemen are told to load up with caffeine. Did you know there's only one individual on the field that requires an intact frontal lobe in the NFL? It's called the quarterback. He's the one having to make the decision, uh, and he's having to analyze the information, et cetera. And so that's the individual that's told to consume no caffeine. Now, I think the lineman coaches might catch up as well, uh, because what happens is, as the quarterback is being pursued, just one little step in the right direction and the lineman goes flying. He has no brakes whatsoever. 
caffeine will get rid of your breaks. And in fact, if your team is having problems with false starts, I can guarantee you it's a problem with caffeine excess of those linemen. They just don't have those, those breaks that are necessary uh, that are there. And if that's true in regards to things like football, how much do you think it would be better for us to not consume this beverage? These are many of the effects of caffeine. Uh, decrease in frontal lobe function due to adenosine receptor blockade. Notice that one, more likely to what? Gossip studies show that you, if you have caffeine on board, you're much more likely to share private information with someone who's not part of the problem or part of the solution to the problem. That's one of the things, reasons why some people like to go to these tea parties, et cetera, because they learn information that way. Uh, of course, it increases in irritability. And one study just done three months ago shows that within 10 minutes of caffeine consumption, your frontal lobe circulation goes down by 40%. 40%, it's a significant difference. Uh, that occurs, and one that the world is starting to wake up to in regards to the effects of caffeine. Now many people say, well in my case it's necessary because I need to have energy in the morning. And this study showed although frequent consumers feel alerted by caffeine, especially by their morning tea, coffee, or other caffeine containing drink, evidence indicates that this is actually merely the reversal of the fatiguing effects of acute caffeine withdrawal. Uh, this was Bristol University. Measurements showed that caffeine users' post-caffeine levels of alertness were actually no higher than non-caffeine consumers who received a placebo, suggesting caffeine only brings coffee drinkers back up to normal. In other words, all the reported benefits of caffeine are present virtually all day, only in those who don't consume it. So if you want to have energy all day and not have this waxing and waning and this uh, sort of thing, don't consume caffeine at all, and you'll have much more endurance, you'll have much more mental uh, stamina than uh, drinking those five-hour energy drinks uh, that are uh, becoming popular in regards to television advertising. Well, what is the frontal lobe desire for optimal function? Carbohydrates are used almost exclusively by the frontal lobe for optimal function, and there are a number of studies showing the advantages of a plant-based diet on IQ. A plant-based diet just that alone, switching to a plant-based diet can improve IQ by a minimum of five points uh, and a, about a maximum of 15 uh, points. And that's a significant difference. That's uh, an average of a standard deviation difference just in regards to switching over to a plant-based diet. Now, that's ta not talking about other factors like omega-3 and others. Ellen White says in regards to those four food groups, they impart a strength, a power of endurance, and what else? Vigor of intellect that are not afforded by a more complex and stimulating uh, diet. And uh, studies have uh, borne this out. Now sugar, of course, is a carbohydrate, and it has been associated to impair frontal lobe functions. And when we eat a refined sugar diet, the waxing and waning in blood sugars can have an effect, particularly when that blood sugar starts to drop, and it'll take the frontal lobe about four hours to uh, come back in regards to logical types of test questions. Memory test questions you'll still be able to do all right with mild hypoglycemia, but not with the logical aspect of things. Arachidonic acid also decreases the ability, it decreases the synthesis and storage of acetylcholine uh, that is critically important for frontal lobe function, and uh, uh, arachidonic acid is present primarily in flesh foods. This was an interesting study done in Great Britain uh, showing that children with high IQs at age 10 are more likely to become vegetarians when they grow up. 
This was 8,000 men and women. They had their IQs measured at age 10, and then they were looked at at age 30. And the higher their IQ at age 10, the greater the odds of being a vegetarian at age 30. In fact, for each 15-point rise in IQ scores in the study, the likelihood of becoming a vegetarian rose by 38%, and this was even after adjusting to factors such as social class and education, the link was still consistent. Now, I mentioned earlier that IQ was related to longevity. And this is one of the reasons. Remember, your IQ is your ability to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. And so what this is measuring, basically, is when kids are intelligent, they have the capacity, chances are, from age 10 to 30, they're going to learn some good information that they know is actually truthful information, and they're more likely to apply it to their life. And as a result, they're much more likely to become a vegetarian just based on IQ aspects of things. And so sometimes uh, you might be in a hurry, you might be um, eating at some social place and someone notices that you're eating a plant-based diet. And I know this happens to me sometimes when I'm in a, a, um, a, a crowd that, that doesn't know me, et cetera, and they'll recognize I'm ordering things different. And then the question is raised, hey, I notice uh, you're a vegetarian. And the question is often then asked, why are you a vegetarian? And, you know, if you don't have a lot of time, you can now just give them the short two-word answer, high IQ, and move on. <laughs> uh, physical exercise uh, is also critically important in regards to um, frontal lobe function. And it's not just good circulation. The good circulation part in the aerobic exercise can help. But particularly, what is helping is, regards, is working with one's own hands in a 3D world environment. It turns out where your hands are located in the brain, your hand uh, motion and function, et cetera, is in the posterior part of the frontal lobe. And so it takes the same arterial circulation. So when we're, we're using our hands in a repetitive way, it actually does help out in frontal lobe circulation. And Eric Sigmund is concerned about that uh, because working with your hands is imperative for full cognitive and intellectual development, uh, we're having woodwork, metalwork, craft, music, or car mechanic classes dropped by many schools, children wanting to play computer games at home, the Western world is becoming a software instead of a screwdriver society. And as a result, IQs are dropping. And uh, particularly, we'll talk about this more uh, later, but IQs are dropping actually more rapidly in men than they are in women. Uh, for ever since IQ has been measured, uh, men have had about a five-point higher IQ. Uh, but the last, few, uh, the, the last generation, that has significantly diminished, not because female IQ is improving, but because male IQ is going down uh, significantly and actually one study just was published, it got a lot of press. Uh, the first study ever that showed that female high IQ is now slightly higher than male IQ, at least in that group that was studied. Research is showing that increasing time spent in the virtual world of computers is placing hands-on play and hands-on learning. 3D learning allows young people to experience how the world works in practice, to gain an understanding of materials and processes, make informed judgments about abstract concepts. But it also just improves frontal lobe circulation. So things like gardening, even washing your dishes, et cetera, can actually be helpful to your brain. Hypnosis attempts to cancel out frontal lobe functions and bring people into a trance in which they are highly suggestible. 
This quote comes from a hypnosis textbook saying it's most easily accomplished by training the eyes to focus in on one object, the best object being a little flickering light. Person will record information and duties without interpretation or without frontal lobe activity. You may have an instrument in your home that trains your eyes to focus in on one object and flickers. What might that be? It's not, it, it is the television set, but it's not any television program won't do this. If, how many of you have ever seen C-SPAN? C-SPAN does not flicker. It's just one camera view. And you'll see a presenter up there, but you know, I've been in a, a, a room full of doctors sometimes. We go into the doctor's lounge and C-SPAN is playing. And the doctors will be talking among each other or they'll be uh, not staring at the set. It's very unnatural to stare at a set that doesn't have a rapid scene of reference change. And as the presenter is presenting, they'll be arguing with the presenter. And they'll say, yeah, but he didn't say this. He's just totally leaving out that, et cetera. And so they're trying to balance out the presentation and uh, talk about how biased that presentation is. You will never see anybody do that during a presentation that's being given with hideous information when it's entertainment television. You'll never see anyone argue with the presenter that's there. Why is that? Because rapid scene of reference change will shut that frontal lobe down. And the person will actually be in a hypnotic trance. And they won't be actually able to put it in the appropriate subset. They may realize at the time that, you know, I don't really necessarily agree with this information that's there, but there's no emotional reaction. There's no attempt to logically talk about how that individual is wrong. And so that's how false ideas can be implanted in individuals, and they don't even realize where those false ideas came from. And there's been many studies done on the effects of entertainment television in the mind. It increases daydreaming decreases creative ingenuity. By the, by the way, those two are always related. When daydreaming increases, creativity goes down. And studies show the more daydreaming you do, actually the more likely you are to develop Alzheimer's. There was a recent study on that. Decreased interest in reading, decreased interest in learning, reduces discernment. It also has an addictive component. Anything that suppresses the frontal lobe of the brain will have an addictive aspect to it. It can make individuals actually feel good for the short term and they tend to go back to it to suppress their frontal lobe. Reduces sensitivity, increases violence. The more TV adolescents watch, the more likely they are to develop attention and learning problems, do poorly in school in the long run. The amount of kids TV watched when they were 14 was positively linked with having attention problems later, not doing homework, being bored at school, not finishing high school, and hating school, the researchers found. 14-year-olds who added one more daily hour of TV doubled their risk of academic failure at age 16. Suppress an effect on your capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge, and even in regards to emotional intelligence, not mentioning the precious time it takes away from family, achievement, and spiritual pursuits. And now they're looking at screen time in general. Whether it's video games, whether it's other types of screen time, particularly entertainment screen time, it's having a suppressant effect on the brain. And studies show the more screen time we look at, the less sleep we tend to get. And sleep is a fundamental component in regards to our capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. Now I'll show you a graph here, I think in a little bit, in regards to melatonin. You make more melatonin early to bed, early to rise. And so in this group, we have filtered out uh, individuals um, that got low melatonin uh, last night because chances are for you to be here in the morning you had to go to bed earlier 
And early to bed, early to rise will double sometimes your melatonin output. And melatonin is, is related to things getting into long-term memory, where you can bring them forth and process them later. Uh, when I was at, uh, uh, in pre-med, I finished my freshman year. I was ready to begin my sophomore year. In my sophomore first semester at Andrews, I was taking quantitative analysis and advanced chemistry class, organic chemistry, uh, physics for scientists and engineers, and uh, foundations of biology. Uh, 16 semester credits of hard science. And I, the classes were all morning, and then I had a lab every afternoon in regards to that, Monday through Thursday. And so I had no, and I had to work in, in the evening. I worked from 7 till 9 p.m. Uh, every night. And fortunately, it was close enough to the dorm. But I'd come across this statement from the pen of Ellen White. We didn't know this about melatonin then, but I was reading and found out that sleep is worth far more before than after midnight, two hours good sleep before 12 o'clock, worth more than four hours after. And so I decided to change my 11.30 bedtime to 9.30. And my only study time was first was in the morning. I would still do devotions. I would then study for about an hour. I would then run three miles, and I would go to breakfast and make it to my 7.30 a.m. class on time. And my advisor, pre-med advisor, said, don't do this class, this type of class schedule. You're going to sabotage your chance of getting into medical school. But as a result of this lifestyle change, I thought I'd give it a try. And I ended up with far better grades that semester than I had my freshman year taking easier classes. Uh, actually ended up with a 4.0 uh, at that time. And so your melatonin, take advantage of that. The early to bed, early to rise is helpful. Also, there's recent evidence on circus septum rhythm and the weekly cycle. There are seven-day rhythms in humans and the things mentioned on the screen. And those things have been well demonstrated in computer analysis. Uh, and uh, I should mention before I go into that, it's not only humans that have a seven-day cycle. Even face flies have a seven-day cycle. Algae has a seven-day cycle. When you take a look through computer analysis at virtually any function, you'll see a sine wave of about seven days. And it's really raising the question, why seven? You know, animals don't know Saturn from Santa Claus. Why are they seven days? It's not just a program thing of, of virtue of the fact that we have a seven-day week. And this is why the, the Earth, this globe beats to a seven-day rhythm. The French tried to change it to a 10-day cycle. They tried to get a, the metric week in there. It was a major failure. Emotion, uh, mental institutions filled up to capacity, all sorts of problems. And the Russians said, well, this isn't right. They went too long. We need to shorten the week to a five-day week. We'll be much more productive on a five-day week. Stalin enforced that, and that was a tremendous disaster as well. And so we do far better with seven, but just like it is there's a best time to go to bed and to get up, there's also a best time in regards to taking this rest. My father had a, an IQ experience. It's just one case. But he, was, he had come across the biblical evidence of the Sabbath when he was taking his master's in engineering. And he was working full-time as an engineer. He had had his bachelor's already. And his only study day was Sabbath. And he realized that if he put into lifestyle what the Bible was recommending, he would probably fail. And, not, and have to drop out of engineering school. But he decided nonetheless, I'm going to follow the Lord's plan. I'm going to step out in faith. 
and his classmates ridiculed him because they, he, they were studying with him on Saturday as well, and they said, you don't know this material any better than we do. You're not any sharper than we are. And you drop this out, and you're done. And he told them, I'm still going to do it. And so he took away his Sabbath day of study, and guess what happened to his grades? They actually went up to the top of his class. He couldn't explain it. His study time decreased, but his capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge increased. And uh, there are studies indicating that people who do keep the seventh-day Sabbath uh, not only have higher IQs, they also, even though they re refuse to work on that day, make more income in general than people who don't uh, work on the, uh, on the seventh day. And, so, uh, and they also actually are more highly educated as well, higher IQ than non-Sabbath keepers. No study has been done on EQ uh, uh, yet. Well, the, uh, the last uh, thing we are going to mention is in regards to, it's not quite the last, music. Music enters the brain through its emotional regions, which include the temporal lobe and limbic system. A study of six-year-olds found that those who took music lessons for one year gained more points on IQ tests compared with their peers not involved in music classes. Benefit was small, but was seen across the spectrum of abilities measured in the tests, including math, language, and spatial skills. What type of music do six-year-olds learn in music classes? They learn classical music. Anyone who starts out learning music has to learn the classical venue. And the classical venue in particular has um, significant advantages. Now later on they will change over to the more uh, syncopated um, uh, rock and roll music that has a more hypnotic effect. It's kind of like entertainment television in regards to the effect. But music therapy can not only help IQ, it can also help mood. This study was done on individuals who'd never been seriously exposed to classical music, showing it improves mood and reduces stress. Six sessions of classical music therapy for a 12-week period in 23 to 45-year-olds improved scores on tests of overall mood, reported feeling less depressed, and also uh, reported feeling less fatigue. And these were normal individuals, otherwise their cortisol levels improved. By the way, your memory, your ability to memorize is related to low cortisol levels. In fact, studies show even in animals, if we take their adrenal glands out, their brains will stay young uh, for a long period of uh, time. In other words, it's the cortisol that actually causes the deterioration in brain performance over time. And music can improve uh, cortisol a level significantly. This kind of music uh, tends to produce a frontal lobe response that positively influences the will, moral worth, and reasoning power. And one of the reasons why there's been a resurrection of classical music, this is a picture I took at the Dallas Symphony, uh, where there's a Christmas concert held every year. It's sold out to capacity every time, never advertised, uh, but it has an enhancing frontal lobe experience and also a very enjoyable experience as well that influences the will, moral worth, and reasoning power. Uh, and studies are now being done on athletes and classical music. Did you know that even if you are a marksman shooting a rifle, you're going to be far more accurate when listening to classical music than when listening to other kinds of music? Uh, this was a study done in Australia. And you know, it's interesting, on TV when they show athletic performance, they virtually always have a background of the syncopated rock and roll music to go along with it. But as far as good athletic task performance, they're far better with the classical music than they are uh, with the 
uh, rock and roll music. The characteristics of brains optimizing music is melodious, can be simple and attractive, beautiful non-dissonance harmonies when we center in on the sevenths and the thirteenths and all of this dissonance, it's not healthy for the brain. Straight rhythms as opposed to syncopated rhythms, even march rhythms are healthy. Rhythm less prominent than the melody and harmony, and if the music tells a story, if you can imagine a scene or a story behind it, this is also beneficial. So how should we take care of our frontal lobe? We must protect it from mechanical injury. Wearing helmets is a good idea. Wearing your seat belts. Supply it with good oxygen, good exercise, deep breathing is important. Give it good nutrition that we've just briefly touched on. Get adequate sunlight. Vitamin D is an important part of frontal lobe uh, performance as well. And serotonin, of course, comes through the eyes as a result of light therapy. Serotonin is critically used in the frontal lobe. Control the inputs over what we're seeing and hearing. Eliminate the things that are going to suppress the frontal lobe. Just like a muscle, if we don't use it, what's going to happen? We're going to lose it. And so we need to center in on things that are going to enhance frontal lobe function. Spiritual themes, studying the Bible, uh, analyzing spiritual material is one of the things that can be very helpful. Working with your hands in 3D on a regular basis. And then regular circadian and circuseptum rhythms. It can make a powerful difference to follow a program such as this. So I want to ask you here, do you want to be more intelligent, more analytical, make better decisions, greater capacity to empathize with others, have better discernment, or a greater ability to see into the future, greater ability to overcome an addiction that requires a frontal lobe as well, or a greater power to follow your conscience? If you answer yes to any of these, I would suggest that you review your life habits, see what you can do to make some positive lifestyle changes to enhance the area of the brain that is critically important for us as we enter into unentered territory as far as the future and the challenges that will be there. Romans 12:2 says, finally, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a what? Living sacrifice. A lot of individuals would think, oh man, I've got to give up my coffee, you know, and I love my, you know, Thursday night TV program, etc. Seems like such a sacrifice. And you know, on the surface, some of these things, if you're not doing them, they'll always seem like sacrificial at first. But Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. What I have found is that when I sacrifice to do the Lord's will, it's never really a sacrifice. It only enhances life. It only makes it more abundant and more enjoyable. And it's going to improve you, not uh, cause problems. So that's why Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. Some people call this extremism. What does Paul call it? He says it's your reasonable service. And then he goes on to say this, be not, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to this world in regards to its diet, its culture, its customs that, are, that tend to be frontal lobe suppressive, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Ellen White says this, the Lord has given man capacity for continual improvement. The Lord has given man capacity for what? continual improvement and has granted him all possible aid in the work. This is why we're seeing these studies come forth in regards to intelligence and all that. He's trying to grant 
all possible aid, and he wants the inspired counsel to be followed. She goes on to say, through the provisions of divine grace, we may attain almost to the excellence of what? Angels, right here in this sinful, fallen world with the bad environment that most of us live in we can indeed attain almost to the excellence of angels if we take hold of the things the Lord has granted us for all possible aid in the work for continual improvement. So by coming to these morning meetings at ASI, you have walked into a very large room. It's actually the largest room in the world. It's the room for improvement. And uh, I would encourage you to take counsel from Proverbs. Wisdom is better than what? If you have a choice between all the money in the world or wisdom, what should you choose? Wisdom. Let's enhance those frontal lobes. Wisdom is better than rubies. And all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Solomon says, whatever it is, whatever the desires of your heart, you might ask yourself, what are the desires of your heart? Whatever those desires are, there's something that's at least equal or superior to those desires. And that is wisdom. Let's take hold of the tools that the Lord has provided for enhancing our capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for what you've revealed through science and inspiration. We thank you that you have also given us the capacity to change. And we pray, Lord, that although we don't have the capacity to change within ourselves, when we learn a better way, we can grasp hold of your power and your spirit. And your spirit can not only be a spirit that improves our capacity to learn, retain, and apply knowledge, but can actually assist us in making the lifestyle changes necessary so that we might be more reflective of your character, that we might be more enjoyable to be around, that we might have that love of learning, that interest, and that ability to engage others to walk the pathway that leads to your throne. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.